0: I want to ask a very personal question here as we begin. How many of you have ever served on a jury before? Mm -hmm. How many of you have gotten your jury summons in the mail? And you go, what, oh no, right? (laughs) We all do that, absolutely. So confession's good for the soul here, that's good. Um, And I've actually served on a couple of juries um, over the number of years. And uh, I would say this past, oh, I can't remember exactly when it was, but it was, past, it was January, I w- had a jury summons, and I actually bumped it ahead six months. You know, you how, how to play that game, you're able to do that. But purposely, I wanted to put it in a time where I could do it. And so I went to the, to the, the day where they were going to be choosing the jurors, and um, they had us all fill out all this paperwork. And uh, before we did that, though, the, the judge actually came down and he came down to talk to all of us potential jurors. They were going to look for, I think it was uh, 14 jurors out of 150 people. But 150 people had to fill out the paperwork. And this, I'd never been in a circumstance when this happened. But the judge came down and he literally gave a speech on the importance of what it means to be a jury. And he, he gave a couple of reasons. I just want to, I jotted them down as best I could, but he was saying basically this. An ordered society is maintained when, number one, its citizens seek to live their lives in accordance to the laws of the land and by the integrity of the courts to uphold the law and render faithful and appropriate judgments based on the legal and accurate evidence presented. And he really stressed the importance of, the function of you, the jury, in part of the process. In order for us to have a society like we have, a well-ordered society, all the parts have to be in play. And I tell you what, I really respected how he came and encouraged, and said, "I know everyone's taking time out of their their, their day. Some of you, you know, are not getting paid today from work, and you know this. But understand, this is really important for our society." Well. I share that with you basically to begin our time to think through the importance of what is going on in this passage, because a typical trial consists of many parts, and they typically include um, the following. You have an accusation. That's the whole reason why there is a trial, right? Someone is being accused of something. Then you have the next thing, and that is a defender, someone who is then being accused, someone who is... Uh, going to be challenged and exposed, um, all sorts of things are going to happen there. Then you have witnesses that are brought to bear witness to the case, to uh, what is being said, both on, on both you know, the positive and negative from the defendants and the, uh, the prosecutors. Then you actually have the accusers who sit um, in the trial, oftentimes saying nothing because the lawyers are taking care of it. And then ultimately you have a verdict but some trials you just have a judge that actually is the one that determines the verdict right so you don't have a jury you just have a judge that his job is to listen to all the evidence to hear all that is there and then the judge actually gives the verdict you can choose that Um, that's one of the options in certain circumstances but more often than not we have you know trial by jury where you know your peers are the ones that are actually um, determining the outcome of the case and the judge in that context is there to make sure that the case is done in a proper way in a legal way and uh, so his role is really to kind of manage and make sure that things are done appropriately and by the rule of law he is not judging himself He may have an opinion and it may be different than the jury but it's the jury that actually determines what is going to happen okay? now the reality is and the reason i'm walking us through this is because in john chapter five jesus is on trial And as we finish out this whole passage, I want us to understand that all the elements that we've just listed here are part of this passage, are going to be addressed or have already been addressed. Jesus is being accused of something. He is defending his case. There are going to be, in this passage that we just read, witnesses in support of his position. There are accusers that continue to accuse him and to bring these charges against him. And ultimately, there will be a verdict, a verdict by a presiding judge. And this morning, for your joyful benefit, you get to be the jurors. But I'm not paying you, okay? Mileage or anything like that. But that's that's the scene here. That's ultimately what's going on because John is recording this for us He's recording it for his readers who are to gather the evidence, right? Jesus says, I, you know, I, all these things, or say John says, all these things I have given you so that you may believe and that through believing you will have life. That's the purpose of his gospel. It's John 20, 30 and 31. And so the readers are ultimately the jury. They're looking at the evidence. They're coming to conclusions and they're saying, yes, he is. No, he isn't. That's the scenario. That's kind of the picture of what's going on. And so Jesus is being accused of, being, uh, of identifying himself as being equal with God. So John invites us now very carefully to watch this trial unfold, to listen to the accusation, to listen to the defense, to listen to the witnesses, and to do so um, understanding the implications of what is being said, understanding or considering the distortions that may be presented, um, and ultimately to come to a place of decision about the truthfulness of what Jesus is claiming himself to be. And that is to be equal with God. Now the background ultimately is the beginning part of chapter 5. And that is where Jesus deliberately brought um, this accusation on himself. If you remember, he comes on the scene at the pool of Bethesda. He chooses a, um, a, a man who is lame, who has been there for 38 years as, a, as an invalid. We don't know if he's been there for 38 years, but he's been an invalid for 38 years. But Jesus comes to this place. And, and again, the picture here is of this mass pool. And the history, um, the people who have done archaeology have uncovered this pool, and understood that there were actually ultimately two pools. And because there were so many people that gathered there, they actually put these, these coverings over uh, so that... Uh, those people that were waiting for the stirring of the water and the angel that apparently did that you know, superstition, but all those people that were waiting would be protected by the rays of the sun. I mean, so there was, there was this, this, this gathering spot of hope and longing, and Jesus comes and asks the man, hey, do you want to be well? And he says, of course I want to be well. Well, that, that seems to be the appearance here. And Jesus says, take up your mat and walk. And so the man does it. Now, Although that is an incredible sign, and it it is identified as a sign, Jesus is healing this man for a purpose. He's healing this man to bring attention to himself, and John tells us he's doing it on the Sabbath. And what happens is as this man is walking through town with this mat on his shoulders, the religious leadership, or we'll call them the Sabbath police, challenge him. Why are you carrying this mat? Well, the guy that told me, or it's the guy that healed me told me to carry my mat. Well, you know, they don't hear the heal part. They just see you're carrying the mat. And so they want to find out who this is. Who is this person that would dare defile the Sabbath? Well, this guy didn't know Jesus' name, but Jesus found him again, again in the midst of all these people and, and talked with him and told him his name. And so this guy right away, boom, goes off and snitches on Jesus, tells these Sabbath police, who Jesus is, and they then are coming to Jesus. But we looked last week, as they're coming, in their mind they're already accusing him, they're already coming to conclusions because Jesus has broken the Sabbath and he answers their questions before they even begin to open their mouths. And the passage is interesting. We started out a little earlier in the chapters where they're intrigued with Jesus and ultimately in early in chapter 5, they want to persecute him, but ultimately they want to kill him. There's this prog- progression that is going on here in this passage. So, the Jews are seeking to kill him. I think that's verse 28 of chapter 5. and um, um, Sorry, verse 18, I should say, of chapter 5. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling, uh, he was calling, calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So before they could answer or they could accuse him, he answers, and this is last week's sermon basically in a nutshell. He tells the number one, I am equal with the father because I am united to him in three ways, in actions, in love, in responsibility. Secondly, I am equal with God um, or with the father in that the work I do is only what God can do. Like the Father, I am the giver of life. Like the Father, I am the judge of the world. So here is, here is his defense. Here is what he says. Not only am I equal with God, but my equality is based on our unity, based on our intimacy. And not only am I equal with God, but, but I actually am the one who now gives life. I am the one who ultimately is the judger of the world. That's a huge, huge statement. And so we, we come now to the rest of the story, so to speak, understanding that so far we've seen the accusation and we've heard the defense. But as we continue, here are the things that we're going to see. And these basically are the headings for your outline. Right, This morning we're going to see the witnesses presented, the accusers confronted, and the verdict established. The witnesses presented, the accusers confronted, and the verdict established. I just give you that ahead of time. So you're not worrying about it, but you can see where we're going. And it really is the flow of the text for the most part. Um, So um, let's just take a moment right now and just ask God to give us um, wisdom and strength as we press on here. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We are truly in awe and amazed, Lord, at John chapter 5 and the richness of it and the power of what it is that you have revealed through your servant John in recording these words and recording what Jesus is saying Um, in his defense and in this trial, uh, Lord, I ask that you would help us um, be humble before you, to be teachable, and Lord, to grasp what it is that you desire for us to know about you so that we can live for your glory. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen. So here's here's what I want you to picture. I want you to picture that we're sitting in a courtroom. Just kind of think along those lines. And there is a judge somewhere who is presiding over this case. And there's Jesus who's the defendant, he's given his defense, and the next thing that's going to happen are the witnesses, and they're going to come in one at a time as they are introduced by the defense, okay? And there are, off on the side, the accusers, and the accusers are there snickering and sneering because they want Jesus dead, that's what they want, now, there isn't really a formal trial going on, but Jesus is assuming that role, and he's placing himself in that legal position as defendant. Okay, And that's going to really have a, a huge part of, of what's going on in, this, in the words that he, he gives here, um, and uh, ultimately will clarify some things that seem to be contradictions, but they're not. So here's the first thing. Um, presenting the witnesses... And uh, he begins with a personal testimony. And, And notice what it says in verse 30. I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own but the will of him who sent me. Verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So Jesus has already given his testimony. He's already given his witness. That's what we looked at last week. But what he's saying now is this. He acknowledges that his testimony alone is not admissible. His testimony alone does not stand. And he is identifying himself as a defendant who, although he can say what he is saying, his testimony alone is not sufficient for a legal verdict. So he is humbling himself into the context Of courtroom procedure so here we just have a wonderful picture here of Jesus in his humility okay so he's not saying that his testimony is not true although he says in verse 31 if I alone bear witness about myself my testimony is not true might want to put in there not valid for the courtroom it's not that his testimony isn't true it's just that it's inadmissible Get the distinction there? Because someone could just pull that out and see. see, even Jesus doesn't think that what he says is true. That's not what's being talked about here. This is courtroom language. It is inadmissible. And so what he's saying is his testimony alone cannot uh, cannot be brought to bear. There must be some corroborating witnesses to establish and support the personal testimony given so there must be another testimony. Verse 32, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Well, who is that other testimony? Who is that other witness? Who is that other person? Is it John the Baptist? I don't think so, because the next, the next witness is actually going to be John the Baptist. Is it someone else? Um, it seems here that what's being talked about is that this is the Father, and that actually all three of the next testimonies are really the testimony of the Father coming out in three different ways. In other words, he's behind it all. And the only testimony that really Jesus has with the Father is a personal testimony, which ultimately would be his testimony, so it would still be inadmissible. Do you understand that? In other words, Jesus is saying, I have this intimate relationship with the Father. I've explained that unity and that intimacy that we have, but it's my words. So, We've got to step outside of my personal testimony, and I've got to come to you with now some corroborating testimony that ultimately is from the Father, but it's fleshed out in three different ways. And so um, we we need to uh, look, first of all, at this other corroborating testimony, and we're going to start here with John the Baptist. So we begin at verse 33. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I received is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Now, again, there's some words here that are just um, maybe you know, kind of a surprise as you, as you read through them, but we've got to understand it in its context what Jesus is saying. You sent to John. In other words, um, Jesus does not need John's testimony to prove to himself that he is who he says he is. Right? I mean, Jesus knows who he is. He knows he's the Son of God. He knows he has this intimate relationship with the Father. So he's given this testimony not because he needs it, but because those who are there, who are listening, need to hear this testimony. His testimony is given now, uh, John's testimony is given to corroborate um, this witness of Jesus. So verse... 35, he, John the Baptist, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his, in his light. The religious leadership was taken up with John the Baptist. If you read the, you know, the history of, of John the Baptist, even in the Gospels, you will find out that the religious leadership was actually okay with John the Baptist. They actually thought, hey, this is a cool deal. For 400 years, we haven't had a prophet in Israel, and all of a sudden, there is someone who is preaching repentance. He is he's acting like a prophet. He really is having an impact. People are coming to see him. They're kind of you know, rubbing their hands, saying, this is great. The people are becoming more aware of their, their spiritual side, so to speak, and, and they're growing and they're getting baptized. You know, hey, this is good. Well, there's no need for us to organize anything. There's no need for us to publicize John's ministry. He's a breath of fresh air. But they were only willing to listen to him and to his testimony for a while. Let me paint the picture of what's going on here. Um, imagine there's a, there's a remote village, and in that village there is a church. And the people in that church are saying, listen, you know, we haven't had a pastor here for a while uh, we want a pastor that's going to come and it's going to preach the word, a faithful expositor, someone who loves God, who's strong in the gospel. And they're like, yeah, that's who we want. We want that kind of a person. And so they've, God you know, works his plan and brings a pastor to that church. And not only is the church celebrating, but so is the community. Our church and our community Um, has this pastor. It's a wonderful deal, and they're thinking about all the things that can happen. They celebrate together, have a great, wonderful kind of kickoff Sunday, and and really, the first month or so, it's just going really, really well. And over time, though, this man comes, and he begins to do what he's been asked to do, and he is faithfully expositing God's Word, and the people, people are, are feeling complete, like this is a great deal, but as he exposits God's Word, he begins to actually unpack it and press it home. And as he does that, people start thinking to themselves, oh, wait a second, um, what is he doing here? He's actually challenging us. He's actually identifying our sin. And so as he's preaching and as he's doing what God has called him to do and as he's doing what even they asked him to do, They begin to complain and they begin to question whether or not they should have him come or not have him come. And they start complaining or thinking or saying things like this. His sermons are too long. He's always hitting us about our sin. The church is too cold and drafty. There aren't enough handicapped spots in the parking lot. He's too narrow minded. The seats are too hard. We need better light and on and on and on. Now, I just, I just want you to think about it. There initially was this great awe and wonder and desire and, and longing for something, but, but when they finally found out what it was that they were asking for, they didn't want it anymore. Now, John comes, and he's this wonderful lamp. He's shining. He's preparing the way. And the religious leaders are like, this is, this is great. This is good. Look at all that's happening here. But the more he talks, the more he speaks, the more he says what he says, it's like, oh, wow. After a while, it's like now we understand what he's really about. And ultimately, we find out Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch at that particular time, is initially intrigued by John. He does have him in prison for political purposes, but he has him in prison. And he brings them up, and he wants to hear from him. He did that a couple of times. But John, he's not one to pull any punches. And so he brings them up one time, and he says, oh, by the way, um, you're living in adultery because you're having an affair with your brother's wife. Or actually, you married your brother's wife, and you can't be doing that, and uh, God is going to judge you. Well, she didn't like that very much. And so she took an opportunity um, through her daughter to really manipulate her husband. And ultimately, um, John was beheaded, and uh, all because he was speaking the truth. Now, understand this, just pause here for a second, that um, the Gospel of John is written 45 to 50 years after the events of what we're talking about here. So when John is writing this, the Jews have already come to the place where they've come to a conclusion where initially, oh, there was this great flare, but now it's waned out, so to speak. And those that listened to the truth, became part of the beginning of the church, and those who were part of the religious leadership who listened to the truth and who were like, wow, this is really cool, and finally rejected him, now have been in this position of rejection for a long time, okay? So just kind of get that in your head as you're thinking about what's going on in this gospel. So that being true... We are told from this gospel that John had been sent from God to prepare the way. He was also a burning and shining lamp. He was not the light, but he only came to bear witness about the light. So, John is a testimony. You listened to him, you came to him, you actually sent delegations to find out about him. Go back in the, in the passage there and look at verse 33. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. See that? He's saying, this is what you did. You sent a delegation, it's, this is good. But ultimately, you reject him. The one whom God sent was ultimately rejected by you. Verse 34, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. That's what John says in John 1.34. That was his testimony. I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God, speaking about Jesus. So they rejected that witness. Let's look at the second witness that he brings. Come on in, second witness, all right? Sit down. We want to hear from you, all right? These are the works of Jesus. Verse 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, Jesus says. His testimony was weighty. But what I'm about to say is weightier still. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Just think through that again. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. I mean, he's very, very clearly presenting evidence to the fact that he is sent from the Father and he is fleshing out what he has already said about him being equal with the Father, united with the Father, and having been given these responsibilities as part of the function of the Godhead. So, what is the work that he's being talked about? How are we to think about um, it as a witness to Christ? This, I think the best answer we can use here is how John uses the word sign. All of these works are really the signs that are taking place. Again, for the works or the signs that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very signs that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So what is a sign? A sign is a symbol, a pointer to something or to someone. And um, ultimately, we can say it is a sign to point either to the presence of God or to a significant figure prophetic figure that has been authorized by God. So the sign is here to point either to God or to point to a particular prophetical figure identifying who that person is and what their function and role is. And so what Jesus is doing as he's healing people, these, these healings, these, um, these miraculous things, they're all signs that are pointing to him as being sent from the Father. So what he's saying is, look at the signs. Here's the evidence Here's what you've seen about me, and you know these. Now, again, remember, this is written after the events took place. So although we're only in chapter 5 of John's Gospel, all that's recorded in John's Gospel and in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke is all part of the data that the people that now are reading this are considering as part of the signs. Okay, we only have just a couple of, I want to say, formal signs that John has for us but the readers know of many of the things that Jesus has done through this or up to this time okay but let's just think through a few of them here all right already we've seen uh, Jesus change water into wine which signifies his creative power we've seen already that he restores the life of a nobleman's son signifying that he has power over disease in the next chapter we'll see Jesus multiplying loaves for the multitude signifying that he is the sustainer of life. And then we'll find that he heals a blind man, signifying that Jesus is able to grant physical and spiritual sight. These are all things that are pointing to him as being the Messiah, as being equal with God, because they're all things that only God can do. Okay? Now, that's just a few of them. And then John lists Um, lists seven signs specifically in his gospel, but the word sign is referring to all the miracles that are taking place. They're all ultimately not an end in and of themselves. Many times they are out of compassion for the people, but even like the man at the the pool of Bethesda, as we saw, it really wasn't something that was done compassionately for Jesus. He was doing it purposely to bring attention to himself. And if we get all caught up in signs and wonders, we neglect point of that and that is Christ pointing to Christ himself all right now i want you to turn to john chapter 10 and we'll see exactly how jesus unfolds this specifically and nails it down to these religious leaders john chapter 10 beginning at verse 37 here's jesus and we're picking up in the middle of a dialogue but what he says here is so critically important to what we're looking at today he says If I am not doing the works of my Father, or the signs of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. It's pretty clear, isn't it? When you look at a sign... You may not believe that I did it, but at least understand the sign points to the fact that I and my Father are united, which goes back to chapter 5, right? So he's just reinforcing and reinforcing his identification of who he is himself, that he is equal with God, that he is God, and ultimately the signs will culminate with two great works, the work on the cross, where Jesus dies for the sin of the world, he atones for the sin of mankind and all sorts of, of I want to say, theological and descriptive things take place as a result of the cross. And then secondly, the resurrection. So all of this is going to culminate together. All these signs, all these works, all these miracles, all these things that Jesus is doing are witnesses that these religious leaders see but are not willing to acknowledge as point to Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God, equal with God. Okay? That's the second witness. So we've seen witness number one, John the Baptist, who came preaching and identified Jesus as the Son of God. We've seen the second witness here, and that would be the signs that Jesus did. And we've really scratched the surface. Going through the whole gospel would reveal all those signs. Now we go to the Scriptures, verse 39. Verse 39. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Ah, okay. (laughs) There it is. Clearly said, right? Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now, when one reads about the meticulous nature and the diligence and the reverence of the Jewish scribes and students of Scripture, there, there is much to impress us. I just want to step back here. Don't, I, I don't want you to think of these religious leaders here as, just, as all being just, you know, just and, you know, and nasty. There's a lot that you can respect about their religious practices. I use that word very carefully. They cared about the translation of the Bible. I don't know if, you, if you've ever done any history on how they would translate and they would copy God's Word. It had great reverence how to love for God's Word. So you don't want to knock them on that. But what Jesus is referring to here when he talks about you search the Scriptures, that is a technical expression. It is the Greek equivalent to a Hebrew word called daros, which literally specifically means to, to, to or refers to study and exposition of the Bible, talking about the Old Testament Torah. Uh, or the oral Torah, but the, the, the Old Testament, the body of oral traditions that had come down through them. So there was this, this wonderful passion that these, these men had as they studied the Word, as they searched the Scriptures, as they exposed it, sought to understand it, and they applied themselves to that. Friends, that is good. But here's the problem. When, um, when our study of the Word of God becomes the end of, as opposed to the means. Now understand, Jesus is speaking to the elite of the elite here. If these guys had degrees today, they would have you know, PhDs from Hebrew University, um, you know, they would have uh, PhDs from, from Jerusalem Theological Seminary, the, the Moses Institute might be what they call themselves, all right? These are the students as well as the theologians of the day, they are the ones who were the scholars. But in their searching and their study, it simply was to come to an end in and of itself. And let me explain that. Here's what the school of Hillel believed. They believed that with more study of the law, there is more life. They believed that, and I'm reading literally now, if a man gains for himself word of the law, he has gained for himself life in the world to come. The more I learn the more life I have in the world to come. You see? Life was connected with how much of a scholar I was, or I am. Now, friends, I'm going to be the first person to tell you, read your Bible, study the Word, make that a habit, you know, live it, own it, know it. But here's the deal. If you're just studying for studying's sake and thinking are impressing God by, look, God, look how much I studied, you've missed the point completely. And that's what they had done. They could tell you what the Word of God says, but in, in telling you what it says, they missed the whole point of what it means. And that's ultimately, I think, what Jesus is talking about. It is not the study of the Scriptures that's the issue, but the question is, are you seeing Christ in those Scriptures? Or are you blind to the fact that Christ is throughout the Old Testament? And that's what's so amazing about uh, Jesus' encounter with the two on the road to Emmaus. Turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke Luke chapter 24. Uh, Just a wonderful passage of Scripture. And by the way, guys, um, anyone here afraid of the Old Testament? Just be honest. Many people are. We're just like you know we were comfortable with the New Testament, but when you get into the Old Testament, it's like it's like all this bloody stuff and people getting killed and you know it just seems really raw and weird and um, and I I understand that and and we want to be careful that although we are going through a New Testament book, understand that so much of the New Testament is undergirded by the Old Testament, but it's not simply to look at the Old Testament as an undergirding. It in and of itself is testimony to the fact that Christ is. He says he is. So we've got to be careful about our perspective and our understanding of what the Old Testament is all about. Now, here's what's beautiful about Luke chapter 24. Jesus, after um, his resurrection, is now, um, he, he encounters these two guys on this, this road to Emmaus. And verse 27 says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Right? Now, I I don't think there's a pastor in the world that hasn't thought to himself, I want to hear that sermon, right? And there are believers who are saying, I want to hear that sermon, and I'm sure it would be a long sermon, all right? All the different ways that Jesus Christ is clearly portrayed and and shown and revealed in the pages of the Old Testament. And these two disciples were so consumed and just in awe of what they were hearing. Notice verse 32. Verse 32. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us when, we, when he talked to us on the road, while he opened uh, to us the Scriptures? Now, friends, it's very, very clear that Jesus not only saw himself in the Old Testament Scriptures, but, but it was what the Scriptures were about. The Scriptures were giving testimony to the fact that Jesus is equal with God. So here we have the three witnesses, John the Baptist, the works of Jesus, the scriptures. And these three testimonies can be brought forth in the court of law. Okay? Great testimonies. So the scriptures in particular, the Old Testament scriptures are faithful uh, in corroborating uh, the witness claims that Jesus is making. Now we need to move on and look at the confront, uh, how Jesus confronts the accusers. Now, what's interesting about the Jewish court of law in that culture is different than what we experience in our culture. Our culture, we don't have defendants having a t- an opportunity to confront the accusers. In Jewish tradition, here, they do. So Jesus, Jesus is functioning within the guidelines of a Jewish legal courtroom scenario. Okay? And he is now taking this opportunity to accuse. Uh, or to, to uh, confront those accusers. So it's clear that based on the witnesses that Jesus has given, hear this, there are no flaws in the evidence. There, there are only flaws in the eyes of the beholders of the evidence. Now, it's sad. As much as I love this country, one of the flaws with the jury system, as a jury can be tainted and they can be flawed, for all sorts of different reasons, to be able to interpret the evidence as it truly should be interpreted. And that's why lawyers go through the whole process of, of choosing a jury they think is actually going to be able to listen to the evidence and is not going to be biased in their understanding. They've already you know, heard or read it in the paper, and you know, they've already come to their conclusion. Boom. Lawyers going to say, no, you can't serve, because I need for you to, to look objectively Number one, to know the, the rule of law. And many times people don't even know the rule of law to be able to come to a conclusion. And even in my experience in a jury, and I remember one time, we, you know, there was one particular case I was in, and I'm sitting as part of the jury, and people were coming to conclusions, and it's like, yeah, but this is what the law says. You can't come to this conclusion. The law says this. It doesn't matter what you think and what you feel the law should be. This is the law. And see, that's one of the things we've got to wrestle with. And here with Jesus, though, the facts have been given. The facts are not flawed. The flaws are in the people that are listening to the facts. And so here's how he summarizes his indictments of these religious leaders, the Sabbath police, all right? First of all, he identifies their ignorance. He exposes their ignorance. Verse 37, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard. His form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one on whom he has sent. Now just remember who he's speaking to here, the spiritual religious leaders. He's saying, you guys are ignorant. You've never heard the Father's voice. You've never seen the Father's form. You've never had the Father's word abiding in your hearts. You are ignorant as to who he really is. You're truly ignorant of the Father. You think that you know the Father, get this, but the Father you imagine is not the Father that is revealed in Scripture. Now, friends, hear this. There's a lot of people that believe in God, right? But it's a God of their own making. And it may be a God that in their mind is under the umbrella of Christianity, but it's still a God of their making because it's not a God that is fashioned and shaped by what he reveals about himself. So, so God, in someone's mind, may not be truly the God of the Bible. And that's what he is saying here: is You think you know the Father, but the Father you imagine is not the Father that is revealed in Scripture. He's a creation of your own hearts. You're still in your darkness, and you're in need of light. Now, that's a, that's a pretty scathing statement to the, to the Jewish leadership here. And it just gets worse. He says, now I'm going to expose their emptiness. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Now, friends, that is a stinging statement. What is, here's the question, what does one of the, one of the, the Pharisees say to Jesus? What is the greatest commandment, right? And, what does Jesus say? You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, your mind, and your strength. They knew that. That was one of their core passages of Scripture. You should love the Lord your God. It's the Shema. All right, this, is, this is what they're all about. And Jesus says, you don't have that. You're empty. Now, it's not the love of God in their hearts as if we're a tank that needs to be filled. It's talking about their love for God. You do not have a love for God. The love of God in you. Why? Chapter 3, verse 19, summarize it real well. They are a people who love darkness more than light. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. So it's all talking about the same thing. There is this religiousness that's going on, but it really is not a true worship of God. It is fabricated, man-made religion built on truth, but distorting the truth because what is built on undermines the truth that it's supposed to be standing on. They did not truly have a love for God because their God was their own creation. So Jesus just comes and exposes it. You're ignorant. You are empty. And here's the third thing. He exposes their unbelief. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. What? What? I come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. But if someone else comes along in his own name, you will receive him. Here's here's one of the commentators said this. The chief judgment on those who deny that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God, is not so much that they have no Messiah, but that they follow false messiahs. They are being led astray by false messiahs. Now, these guys had in their mind an idea of what Messiah was going to be, but it certainly wasn't the person who was standing before them speaking to them. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? So the issue, again, is not the evidence is flawed, but that they are flawed in their understanding of who is actually standing before them. their understanding of the evidence. They do not want to take the evidence and to see it as it really is. They just want to snuff him out. And the reason they want to snuff him out is because of their motives, and their motives are twisted. That's what Jesus is talking about. You make no effort to please uh, God, but only men. Your desire is to gain the praise of men and to only get the accolades from messiahs that are coming up that will support you. Then you will support them. You're not really looking for an opportunity to truly please God. It's all selfish stuff. So it's not how Jesus came. Jesus did not come saying, you know, I'll scratch your back if you scratch my back. He came with the truth of the gospel and a call for repentance. He came claiming to be equal with God, but they did not receive him. They would not believe him. They wanted to kill him. So here's his accusation. Here's his confrontation to those accusers. You're ignorant, you're empty, and you do not believe the facts that are laid before you. Now, let's transition to establishing the verdict. Now, this is what I was telling you before about the importance of seeing that Jesus is humbling himself under this whole dynamic of a Jewish legal courtroom scene. Notice what it says in verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Now, wait a second. Didn't Jesus just a little bit back in chapter 5 talk about the Father has asked him now to be the judge of the world, that he was ultimately going to be the one that would judge everyone? And now he is saying, I don't have the freedom to judge you, I am not the judge in this case. Doesn't that seem to contradict what's going on? No. The reason it doesn't contradict is because Jesus is saying, listen, not only is my testimony inadmissible in this court because I am the person who is being accused and I am defendant, I can, even though I have the right and the responsibility to to judge, I have to step away and allow someone else to be the judge in this case. Again, he is being totally humble in this courtroom scene. And he's saying, listen, I'm going to let the evidence stand, and I'm going to let someone else be the judge of whether or not I am who I say I am. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So who is the judge in this case? Who is the guy sitting up there who is listening to the evidence, who is, who is also contributing his testimony about whether Jesus Christ is who he says he is? The answer is Moses. All right. You say, well, how, how, what's that about? Well, think about this. Who are some of the heroes of you know, the Jewish people, in particular the Jewish leadership? Abraham? Moses? Joshua. I mean, so we're talking about here, here here is one of their their pillars of the faith, right? Rightfully so. But Moses, Jesus says, even himself is bearing witness that what I am saying is true. So you have a choice, either to deny me and Moses, (laughs) all right, or listen to his testimony and listen to his judgment. He will will judge the Jews. Why? Why? because in his writings he wrote of me. Now, it could be Deuteronomy 18.15. You might want to turn there. Deuteronomy 18.15. This could be what Jesus is talking about. It says there, and again, this is a book written by Moses, but Moses also, the character in here, speaking and recording God's words. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your brothers it is to him you shall listen now although it may be referring to a passage like this i think more likely what's being talked about here and what jesus is talking about is not so much the content of what moses is saying but the way that they failed to read the books of moses in other words they didn't read they didn't read the accounts that moses gave from a perspective of seeing the Son of God, rising up in the passages of Scripture. They just saw the books kind of flat and plain without looking for and seeing Christ that is revealed in those particular passages. Okay? Um, As they read Moses' book, they, they simply saw the law in particular as a means by which they had to keep the law and that man had to measure up. But that was never God's intention. It wasn't just so man had to measure up. The whole point of the law was what? It was to show that man could not measure up and that because man could not measure up, he was needy. He was helpless. He was sinful. He was in need of a mediator. He was in need of a savior. He was in need of a solution. Ultimately, the law reveals our sin and points us to Christ. That's fleshed out more like in the book of Romans and in the book of Hebrews. Okay, But we find this this beauty in in the, the books that Moses wrote because he was inspired by God. But he ultimately is pointing with introducing the law to the fact that we need this Messiah. We need this Christ. And Jesus kind of fleshes this out, too, that they would not read the law in this way. They were blind to it. They could not. They weren't willing to see Christ as Moses understood him. But the, the Sermon on the Mount, in particular, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus saw himself as the fulfillment of the law. He didn't come to do away with it. Now, I realize there's a lot maybe we, you know, we could unpack as we go through the Old Testament and just point these things to Christ. And it's important for us to understand as we read the Old Testament to, to try and see where is Christ revealed and how is Christ revealed. Now, we've got to be careful not to find Christ in places that he's not supposed to be there, right? Forcing things that, that aren't necessarily there. But there are clearly places where Jesus Christ is revealed, and oftentimes we find that connection in the New Testament. And the apostles in their discourses, in their letters, even sometimes Jesus in the Gospels identifies different places in the Old Testament. Well, say, here, I'm raised up. Here, I'm raised up. Here I am. Here I am. And looking for him and seeing him. So ultimately here, what we want to understand is that the judge is Moses. And the judge is looking down on these Jewish Sabbath police And he's saying, you are guilty of not looking at the evidence and judging this fairly. He is the judge. Now the question is, how is the jury going to respond? That's us. That's anyone who's reading this gospel. What kind of conclusion are you going to come to as to whether or not Jesus is who he says he is? Now I want to finish up here with three, might want to say, concluding thoughts that kind of go back and and wrap our hands around some of the themes that bring out of this. I think are also very helpful for us as we consider this, this courtroom scene, this beautiful, wonderful way that Jesus demonstrates himself as being equal with the Father in a legal way. Here's the first concluding thought. Consider the evidence. Nothing new here, except for the fact um, I want to share this quote. But, um, you know, what is your verdict? As you look at the evidence that you're seeing, are you growing in your understanding of who Jesus is? Are you being solidified in your awareness that Jesus is not only the Son of God, but he is God, and the, the relationship he has with the Father and the Godhead, and who he says is actually who he is based on all this evidence? C.S. Lewis, his classic um, words penned so long ago are really appropriate here. Listen as I read. Actually, I think I have it up on the screen. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying that really foolish things that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said this, this sort of things Jesus said, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg. You can tell this is dated, right? Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. Now, most of the religions of this world will say that Jesus was what? A great human teacher. Here's the evidence. It's laid out for you as we go through this gospel. Here are the witnesses. Look at the witnesses. Look at what they say. John the Baptist the works of Jesus, and then you have the scriptures, beginning to end. Look at all the evidence. Now, ultimately, you have to come to a conclusion. From a legal courtroom scene perspective, you have to come to a conclusion based on the evidence. What say you? Consider the effects. It's the next thing. If you believe the evidence to be true, consider the effects. You will be viewed in the contemporary thought as a blasphemer of modern thinking because you believe that Jesus Christ is God, is equal with God, and is who he says he is. You see, the standard contemporary school of thought would say that's nonsense. And so when you say, I believe in Jesus Christ, you are blaspheming, you are being disrespectful to scholarly thinking. And the second thing there would be, you'll be labeled as simple-minded. Because, you know, I guess if you have to hold on to something like that to get through life, you know, if you need to believe in Jesus Christ as God, if that will help you, you know, it's okay, I don't mind, you know. But you know what the people are really thinking? You know, too bad they're simpletons. So easily swayed by such foolish thinking. Guys, it's all manipulation. It's all defense mechanism. People may not think of it that in that way, but Jesus Christ has declared himself to be God, has shown himself to be God. The evidence is there, but if we embrace it, We do run the risk of going against modern thinking and being identified as simpletons who are not willing to think. So just own it. That's how people are going to treat you. Here's the last thing. Consider the implications of the enemies. And friends, this one really, I really thought through this a lot and just was really challenged by it personally. In John 5, Jesus describes the perversion of religion that can no longer hear God's voice. That's what he's saying. It's a religion that knows the scriptures and uses them to defend all kinds of wrong things. There's a story about a community that was established and built in the wilderness alongside a canal. And the canal was there to bring water and life. Lots of time, lots of money, lots of energy, lots of effort, lots of planning, lots of expense Um, was Uh, was given to establish this canal and to build then a community out in the wilderness around this canal. Lots of sacrifices were made. Many died. The canal was cut through both mountain and desert. But the great irony is over time, the canal became dry. And because its walls were there and they still conveyed evidence of the canal, the community still existed and people still... Um, wanted to remember the canal and the, the water that was there. And uh, before long, they would, they would you know, erect these little shrines along the way to remind themselves of the canal and all the people that had worked so hard and all the people that had died. And the people continued to service it and make sure it was painted and looked good and all that kind of stuff. But now it was simply a historic thing. This is the canal that used to bring water into this community. It was the beginning of of this wonderful place that we have. So many people in history labored to make this possible. And we need to teach our children about the canal. And we need to, to, to encourage our younger people to be initiated into the canal club So they will teach their children as they get older about the importance of this location and and this canal and, and all that it meant and why this is behind our community. But each generation seems to lose a fraction of the true vision of the canal as time goes by, and no one really has any memory of what water in the canal really looks like, because all they're looking at is the empty, dry canal. Say, what's the point of all that? Hear this. The possibility always exists that my life, my church, my tradition, my denomination, even my Bible will become relics of religious curiosity instead of living instruments of God. In other words, the whole point of the canal was what? To bring refreshing, life giving, cool, satisfying water take away the water, you have nothing. It is very possible that we can be putting on all the forms that come with what it means to have life-giving water, but not have life-giving water, but all the forms. Friends, that's what religion looks like. You know, the big cathedrals... Nothing wrong with a cathedral in in itself. It's a building. It's a place where people can worship. But the thing is, if people are not worshiping in those places, it's empty. It's cold. There's no life. And friends, if this is true of the Jews who were given the truth of God, breathed out by Him, certainly it's possible for us to have all the forms of godliness but have no power because we've abandoned the life giving water and fresh, refreshing, cool water that is the gospel, that is the life of Christ in us. And friends, I'm staggered by that reality. And we need to make sure that as we develop forms, as we we implement things like, you know, am I reading my Bible? Am I taking time to pray? Am I coming to church? Or am I having a small group? Or am I a part of a, a home group? Or whatever it might be. That the vehicle does not become the end. That it is a means to being satisfied with the water that comes down the canal, right? Because we can talk all about how great church is and how great the Bible is as a document and as a religious um, piece of literature and stuff like that. No, this is life. What God has given us is life. Life. And so when Jesus says, I am bearing testimony that I am the Son of God, that I am equal with the Father, that, that we are united together, and here's evidence upon evidence upon evidence, you will reject it if you've rejected life. But he is not a lamp. He is a light. And John bore witness to him. And friends, we have the opportunity to continue to drink of the cool water of life that is available for us. But we need to continue to examine the evidence that feeds our belief, that brings everlasting and abundant life. Jesus was put on trial and the evidence was given, but that jury came to different conclusions because they did not want to acknowledge Or believe the evidence. I trust that would not be true with you. That you would take God for who he says he is. And see the evidence for what it really reveals. Lord help us today. Um, This is not an easy text of scripture. Yet at the same time Lord it is a wonderful text of scripture. I want to just thank you Lord. For. A passage of scripture that I really was not aware of. Oh, I've read it. <laughs> you know that, and I think we would all say the same thing. We have read this, but we have maybe not understood the importance of John 5 as being a a, a wonderful self-disclosure on your part, a demonstration of your humility to be willing to be put under the. Um, the confines of a Jewish trial, giving testimony but not allowing it to be admissible, humbling yourself, although you are the judge, to not be the judge in this case of yourself, but allowing someone else to judge. Well, you've, you've, you've laid that all out there for us to see. And Lord, I, there, there's so much more as we, as we go and we chew it some more and as we dwell in it some more and even as we talk more about it in home groups and just amongst ourselves, Lord, would, would you allow John chapter 5 to be significant in our lives so that when we think of you, we think of you truly as being the Son of God and equal with the Father, not just in theory, but because we've seen it revealed in your word and that we are confident and we are sure, and we're certain, Lord, that this is true. Because those who come claiming to have a truth do not look at the evidence and will challenge you in your claim to be equal with God. Lord, help us to be ready to defend to speak the truth. Lord, not that you need us fighting for you. You will always bring glory to yourself. But Lord, you have called us to be faithful witnesses of what we know to be true. So Lord, help us today in our own growth, in our own understanding. But Lord, also as we flesh out the gospel in our lives, to have this arsenal ready to go, to declare you as the wonderful son of God that you are, completely and totally and fully intimate, united, and equal with the Father. Help us, Lord, today, we ask in your name.